Welcome to Multinational Insights with AIG. Each session will bring together experts both within and outside of AIG to discuss the most pressing issues related to the complexities of multinational insurance placements around the world. Our goal is to bring insights and expertise to our multinational community and address your most important questions. Your host is Phil Rhodes, the head of multinational intelligence for AIG. Welcome to our second installment of Multinational Insights with AIG. I'm Phil Rhodes, the head of multinational intelligence and host of our session. Today, I'm very pleased to have my friend and colleague, Dave Halperin, AIG Deputy General Counsel and Head of Legal for AIG Multinational as our guest. Dave has an extensive background within the multinational commercial insurance space, a deep understanding and command of the legal and other intricacies related to effective multinational insurance placements, and perhaps as importantly, a unique ability to make often quite complex issues tangible and real to colleagues such as myself and I know many others. We've already received several questions and topics of interest from our brokers and clients and have tried to incorporate the most frequent into our discussion, but we'll certainly take any additional questions at multinational.insights at AIG.com. Dave, welcome to our session. Thanks for having me, Phil. Glad to be here. Let's start off with a compliance topic that I know uh, we, we hear a lot about um, in connection with multinational insurance programs. Can you give us a feel for what that means and how folks should think about it? Sure, Phil. Clients with operations in multiple countries will find their subsidiaries subject to the laws of each of those countries. Some countries have laws prohibiting local buyers from purchasing, quote-unquote, non-admitted insurance, which is essentially insurance provided by an insurance company not licensed in that particular country. The specific requirements vary by country and can further vary by product or even by the party the laws apply to. If a country requires local operations to be covered by a locally licensed insurance company, then a client's local subsidiary, because it's resident in that country and thus subject to local regulation, may be at risk of violating local law if it does not have a local policy issued by a locally licensed insurance company. That is why you hear so much about compliance and the need for local policies, namely policies issued in each country to each of the client's subsidiaries as a critical compliance technique. The need for insurance from a licensed insurance company is one of the reasons why multinational insurance programs do not typically consist of a single global policy covering the client and all of its subsidiaries worldwide. Rather, the most effective and compliant programs consist of local policies in all or most countries where the client is operations, along with a master global policy serving as a coordinating backstop. Great. That makes a lot of sense. As with most every insurance contract, claims handling and payment are often viewed as among the most critical elements of a well-structured multinational insurance program. In your view, what is the best way to ensure this functions in the most efficient manner? Sure. When you boil claims down on multinational programs, essentially clients want their claims paid where the losses occur. That's paramount for clients. The best way to ensure local claim payment is to have a local policy in place for each subsidiary in each country. The desire for local claim payment is another reason multinational programs typically consist of a combination of local policies and a master policy, rather than merely one single global policy. However, even with a well-structured program, there can be situations where local claim payment may not be feasible, such as if there's no local policy, or say the local policy doesn't cover the particular loss, or the local policy is already exhausted. 
That's where the global master comes in, but potentially with limitations. While an insurance company may be able to provide a global policy with a global coverage territory from its home country, it may not be able to provide essential insurance-related services locally because it's not licensed in the country where the loss occurred, may be prohibited by local law from providing claim services or even making claim payments locally. Even if it is not prohibited, a global carrier may refuse to undertake these activities in foreign countries so as to avoid creating a nexus that could subject it to legal or regulatory scrutiny in those countries. There can be risks for the client too. There might be situations where a global carrier would be comfortable making a payment into a local country where it does not hold an insurance license, but upon a review of the non-admitted insurance restrictions, a local insured might not want to receive such a a loss payment from a non-admitted insurance company because of potential tax and regulatory consequences that the local subsidiary may face. Clients and brokers should be considering those aspects as well. In sum, due to limitations on the ability of a global carrier to respond locally, a multinational and its subsidiaries may be in the unenviable position of responding to claims on their own. The best way to ensure that a carrier will manage losses and claims locally is to have local policies issued by a global carrier's local affiliates and third-party insurance partners in the carrier's network. Great. Thanks, Dave. Not surprisingly, several questions were received on two issues I'm sure you and your team are frequently discussing, the Financial Interest Clause and DIC-DIL. Let's take them one at a time. First, can you explain how the Financial Interest Clause functions and its benefits as well as limitations? Sure. An FIC, or quote-unquote FINC as it is sometimes called, is a provision within a global policy that covers the parent's loss of financial interest when a loss is suffered by a worldwide subsidiary. So it's sort of an indirect loss for the parent, if you will. A loss suffered by a subsidiary causes a reduction in the value of the parent's financial interest in that subsidiary, for which the parent is indemnified under the FIC in its home country. An FIC is typically included as an endorsement to a global policy. In a typical global policy without a FINC, the policy covers the parent insured and also covers its worldwide subsidiaries, either through expressly listing listing those subsidiaries or under some type of broad insured wording. However, when an FIC applies, there is only one insured entity, only one, the parent insured. The subsidiaries are not actually insured entities under the policy. This may seem constraining, but that is the entire point when you consider the purpose of an FIC. As mentioned previously, some countries prohibit non-admitted insurance, and global policies are usually non-admitted in the countries of the client subsidiaries. So, the client subsidiary is covered under a global policy, and the subsidiary is in a non-admitted prohibited country, the client subsidiary has a regulatory risk by virtue of being covered by an insurance company not licensed in the subsidiary's country. By removing the subsidiary from the non-admitted policy, the client's regulatory risk is mitigated. So, the point of an FIC is to mitigate regulatory risk to the client's subsidiary by removing the subsidiary from being insured on the non-admitted global policy. However, the client still needs insurance protection for its subsidiary. To effectuate that protection, instead of having the subsidiary covered on the non-admitted policy, the client will be covered for its financial interest in that subsidiary. Now, keep in mind, the FIC has only been tested in court in a very limited way. There is not a large body of case law or other judicial precedent floating around. Famously, there is the Adidas case in India, which upheld an FIC and lends some credence to the FIC concept. However, that case is limited to India, 
And the case also had some unique facts supporting a separateness between the European master policy and the local policy in India. As for limitations, there are a couple critical ones clients and brokers should consider. First, and most importantly for clients, if an FIC is triggered, the claim payment may only be made to the parent client in its home country. Why is that? It is because the parent client is the only insured entity on the FIC. So it stands to reason that making a claim payment to the subsidiary that sustained a loss in the subsidiary's country is not supportable. How could you justify paying a subsidiary when that subsidiary is not actually an insured entity? The claim proceeds would potentially be deemed a windfall for that subsidiary and perhaps subjected to tax and possibly other regulatory measures. The payment must be made to the parent insured. This can be a significant drawback for some clients. As mentioned previously, clients generally want local claim payment. Second, because the subsidiaries are not insured entities under the FIC, they cannot rely on the global policy to evidence coverage to their counterparties or to government authorities. Depending on the industry of the client, particularly the subsidiaries in question, this could be limiting. Third, because of the exposure covered under an FIC as the parent insured's financial interest in its subsidiaries, the exposure belongs to the parent insured, not the subsidiary. This means that the entirety of the FIC-related risk is quote-unquote headquarter risk, sitting with the parent insured in its home country, and the premium allocation for that risk must be to the parent insured's home country. In sum, clients and brokers should be discerning in their desired use of an FIC. It can be quite helpful to mitigate regulatory risk in countries prohibiting non-admitted insurance, especially if the subsidiary has a substantial operation there, but it comes with certain trade-offs. When it comes to discussions around FIC, clients and brokers need to be making informed decisions. Right. Thanks, Dave. I can see by the complexity and the detail that you provided why this is of such great uh, interest to our brokers and clients. Let's tackle the next one. Difference in conditions and difference in limits. They both play a meaningful role in the placement of multinational programs. What should our audience be thinking about when considering DIC and DIL provisions in their own programs? Sure, Phil. Difference in conditions, often called DIC, and difference in limits, often called DIL, or together sometimes referred to as DIC-DIL or even DICDIL, is a critical component of multinational programs. The typical program structure, which is often called a controlled master program, consists of a master policy issued in the client's home country in conjunction with a series of local policies issued to the client's subsidiaries in multiple countries. The local policies are tailored to the legal and regulatory requirements in the countries, oftentimes on policy forms that have been filed and approved by the local regulators, as well as tailored to the necessary coverages, customs, and nuances that have grown up over time in each country. That said, the client's risk manager or insurance manager is often accountable for ensuring there is a baseline of coverage across the group. The network of differing local policies could leave gaps in coverage from the client's headquarter vantage point. That's where the master policy comes in. It provides a backstop of terms and conditions and limits to plug those gaps. The plugging of those gaps is what DIC-DIL is all about. If a local policy's terms and conditions do not, for whatever reason, cover a local loss, then the subsidiary could potentially be covered under the master policy. That would be characterized as a DIC cover. If a local policy's limits have already been exhausted, then the subsidiary could potentially be covered under the master policy. That would be characterized as a DIL cover. Now, a few points on DIC-DIL. First, the reason subsidiaries are entitled to DIC or DIL cover is because they are typically insured entities under the master policy. 
If for whatever reason they aren't, then they would not be entitled to such cover. One reason for this would be FIC. As previously mentioned, FIC operates to remove local subsidiaries from being insured under the master, leaving only the parent insured. If an FIC is triggered, there will be no DIC-DIL. A second thing to keep in mind with DIC-DIL is the master doesn't necessarily need to include an express DIC-DIL provision. It's more of a concept, really, than a wording. If a subsidiary is insured under the master, it has a right to coverage under the master, period. Not only if there's a DIC or DIL provision. So, if the terms of a subsidiary's local policy do not provide cover, the subsidiary can turn to the master policy regardless of whether the master has an express DIC-DIL provision. Third, the coverage under the master is not automatic. The subsidiary's right to cover under the master will depend on the terms and conditions and limits of the master. Lastly, the global policy could also cover the subsidiary other than on a DIC-DIL basis. If the subsidiary, for whatever reason, does not have a local policy in place but is an insured entity on the master, then it would be entitled to coverage subject to the master's terms, conditions, and limits, of course. Claim payment mechanisms, namely where to pay, might also need to be considered by both the insurer and insured given some of the considerations mentioned earlier. Those of us who work in the multinational insurance space understand that the best, most certain path to protection is to have local policies in place, but sometimes there isn't one and the master can potentially step in. Right. Great. Thank you, Dave. We've done quite a bit of heavy lifting right off the bat on some topics I know are of interest very much to our brokers and clients, but I'd like to take a step back and ask you a couple of broader questions that we often hear specifically from your point of view. Are there any fundamental key considerations related to coverage, proof of insurance, compliance, or claims that you feel should be part of all placement discussions? There are certain critical decisions that need to be made by clients, and the insurance companies and brokers need to educate the clients so they can make informed decisions. The first critical decision is where to purchase local policies. A client may have subsidiaries in 100 countries. The more significant the risk, the greater the need for local protection. Sure, a subsidiary may have a mere two-person sales office in a given country where they sell benign, unregulated products. That country may not have a particularly active insurance regulator. In that situation, perhaps, a client may choose not to arrange for a local policy and instead rely on the master. However, that is often the exception. If the client has a substantial operation, produces dangerous products, owns real estate, operates in a regulated industry, let's say, needs to show evidence of insurance to counterparties or regulators, or has frequency or severity of claims activity, then a local policy is more of a necessity than a discretionary purchase. It could also be a compulsory cover, like third-party motor, for example, so the decision to buy local will be made for the client in that case. That all relates to front-end procurement of a policy, but there are also claim stage considerations to pay attention to. As we've discussed, clients generally want claims paid in the country where the loss was sustained and paid to the entity that sustained the loss. Neat, simple, straightforward. That's how clients like it. However, as discussed earlier, an FIC will preclude local claim payment. So the client must undertake a risk-based assessment. How strongly does it want claims paid locally in a given country versus what is its regulatory risk such that it may want to consider an FIC and by doing so, necessarily forego local claim payment. These are the types of decisions that clients need to make. Tax is also a critical discussion point on multinational programs. First, there is premium tax. 
The premium on a multinational insurance program must be allocated across all policies within the program. The premium for each policy must be just and reasonable, basically as if the policy were standalone and not part of a program, and they must reflect the actual risk covered by each policy. Premium allocation, contrary to the belief of some, is the responsibility of the insurance company. The insurance company, client, and broker should work together, sure, but ultimately, it is the responsibility of the insurance company and should be settled on prior to binding the program. Having appropriate allocations is important to protect the client. The parties need to make sure to avoid situations where, say, 40% of the risk within the program sits in a single country, but say only 5% of the global premium on the program is allocated to that particular country. Second, there is income tax. Depending on the program structure, it is possible that the client could sustain income tax liability in certain situations. Say a subsidiary sustains a large loss but is not covered on a local policy, or there is no local policy in place. The claim payment under the global policy may need to be made to the parent insured in its home country, as opposed to the country of the local subsidiary. Since the parent insured did not actually sustain the loss, the proceeds could be taxable as income to the parent company because it could be viewed as a windfall. Moreover, if the subsidiary is not sufficiently capitalized to absorb the loss on its own, thus necessitating funds to be contributed by the parent to the subsidiary, the funds could potentially be considered taxable income of the subsidiary as well. A local tax authority could also look to recover unpaid premium tax from a subsidiary that receives the proceeds of a claim payment from its foreign parent or seeks to penalize the local operation for not having local insurance in place. These are the types of considerations that insurance companies, brokers, and clients should be discussing as part of their program structure. Great. Thanks, Dave, for walking us through that. In addition to these fundamental considerations that you outlined, there seems to be a wide range of approaches to structuring multinational programs overall. What is your view on how insurance groups and brokers should be supporting their mutual clients? Phil, the world is evolving faster than ever right now. Carriers and brokers need to stay abreast of all developments, regulatory trends, emerging risks, and so on, so as to be able to partner with clients, develop new products, and new risk mitigation techniques. Program structures need to adapt to all this change. Insurance groups need to have a substantial, global, and holistic infrastructure to support clients, both on the advisory side to educate and the servicing side to effectuate so many policies so much cross-border money movement, and other logistics. How do the insurance groups and brokers help the clients amidst all that change? The key is early and substantive discussions among all three parties with deep dives into the industries and operations of the client, the regulatory landscape of the relevant countries, and the risk tolerance of the client, both in terms of insurance risk and regulatory risk. Data, of course, is a critical piece to these discussions. In the end, the quality and timing of dialogue among the insurance groups, brokers, and clients will often determine the success of the program. This has been great, Dave. Thank you for spending some time with us for the second Multinational Insights with AIG podcast. We appreciate your expertise and the detail that you have provided on some very important topics submitted and covered for our multinational clients and brokers. We hope that this has been insightful for our listeners and encourage you to submit any follow-up questions, comments, or suggestions for future sessions to multinational.insights at AIG.com. Please join us for our next podcast later this quarter, and thank you for listening. 
Thank you for listening to Multinational Insights with AIG. To stay up to date on the latest in multinational intelligence, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information and resources, head to www.aig.com forward slash multinational. Should you have any questions about today's session, or if there are particular topics you'd like to hear more about in future episodes, please contact multinationalinsights at aig.com. Thank you.